Welcome to a special edition of the Sustainability Agenda, jointly with the Drawdown Agenda, an exciting new podcast series exploring the groundbreaking research behind the best-selling book Drawdown, a new and inspiring vision on how we can reverse global warming by achieving Drawdown when atmospheric greenhouse gas concentrations peak and begin to decline. The ethos of Drawdown is to support, to be generous, to offer, to give. And I feel like humanity has not had a framework around which to organize itself with respect to climate and global warming because it's primarily been defined by problems. And the problems are real and they're accurate. It's just that that's not a basis to organize in an effective way. You need possibility. And what we want to focus on is what we know how to do very well so that if we projected it out over 30 years and it showed that we could achieve drawdown, which it does, then people would have a sense that it was grounded, that it was possible, and that that mindset of game over could be reversed itself to game on. We can do this. I'm very pleased to introduce Paul Hawken to the podcast. Paul is an American environmentalist, entrepreneur, author and activist, and he has been the prime mover behind Project Drawdown. He's a prolific author and has written multiple articles, op-eds and peer-reviewed papers, as well as seven books, including The Next Economy, Growing a Business, The Ecology of Commerce and Blessed Unrest. He also founded several companies and set up the Natural Capital Institute in 1998. Paul is currently the executive director of Project Drawdown, which he hopes is an antidote to the silver bullet mentality that has persisted for so long about global warming. Thank you very much, Paul, for taking the time today to speak to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. Virgil, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So this is a, a tremendous project, Paul, and has really had tremendous momentum and is a very exciting project. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, where did the idea come from? <laughs> well, the idea started really in 2001 when the third assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, came out. And like all prior assessments, each successive one is more pessimistic or more, you know, more <clears throat> listen up, people. We have a problem. And the reason for that isn't so much that the science is better in each assessment, but it's partly due to the fact that. The IPCC reports are consensus science, and there's no such thing as consensus science because science is evidentiary, you know. And the consensus was really a suppression of the voices and the science of those that really went against the interest of Saudi Arabia, of Russia, of China at that time, of Venezuela, etc. And so you always had to read between the lines when you read the summary reports of the IPCC assessments. And I read the third one, and sobering, of course. And at that time, or in that year, the carbon mitigation project came out of Princeton University and announced the eight global wedges. And there was a much to do about it and people saying these are the wedges that will lead to stabilization of emissions by 2050. And um, they were comprised of 15 different solutions. You could call them mix and match or pick from them. And that if adopted, uh, as projected, you know, would lead to um, stabilization of emissions by 2050. Well, anyway, there was so much 
um, press about that, that, you know, I certainly looked at it and I looked at it carefully and I, I was actually a little bit incredulous and that there was so much excitement about it. And the reason I uh, was incredulous is because 11 of those 15 solutions that would comprise the, the eight wedges were only possible if the boards of directors of some of the largest, most conservative corporations in the world would adopt them. In fact, all 11 were deeply underwater financially, which means that boards of directors of energy companies, utility companies, car companies, would have to basically uh, vote their balance sheet into these solutions, that is to say, lose money and be fiduciarily irresponsible. And it just seemed like this is only something that it economists could come up with in a university, you know, which is here's the solutions. It actually doesn't even remotely work in the real world. And um, so it, it was, and then after that, of course, it was 9-11, which was, a, 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 you know, the same year. But it, it was at that time that I began to uh, ask other NGOs and institutions, like, why don't, do we know where we stand? I mean, what can we do? What's practical? What, what, what can we do that we know how to do and are doing? Uh, is it scaling? If it continues to scale, what will the impacts be? In other words, I want to get a more grounded truth about what humankind's capabilities were and what we were doing at that time and what it would mean if we continue to amplify it going forward uh, over several decades. And I also wanted to know why we weren't naming the goal because people talking about stabilization, talking about reduction of emissions, slowing emissions, talking about mitigation. And um, I just felt like, those aren't meaningful goals. Mitigation, which is a word you hear mostly today, actually means to reduce the pain, severity, or seriousness of something. And I thought that is an underwhelming goal, given the enormity of the implication of global warming. So I wanted to also name the goal, like, can we just reverse it? Let's talk about reversing it. In other words, not just slowing down emissions, but actually bringing them down back home. And the response I got at that time was was laudable. You know, people said, what a great idea. But at the same time, everyone said, well, we don't do that or we don't know how to do that. Why don't you do it? I said, I don't do that and I don't know how to do it. And that's why I came to you. <laughs> and, and I did that for a couple of years and then I forgot about it because every door I knocked on said, you know, patted me on the back and said, you know, good thinking, but we, we can't do that. And it wasn't really until 2012 where it came up again, when Bill McKibben wrote his piece, Global Warming's Terrifying New Math and Rolling Stone. And he took the work of Mark Campanale, a carbon tracker in London, who basically was a financial analyst. And in his role at Carbon Tracker, which is a nonprofit, he basically analyzed the balance sheets of the top coal, gas, and oil companies in the world and pointed out that what they were counting as assets were unburnable carbon. That is to say, if we actually combusted it, we'd be like a Venus. In other words, it, it, it's silly to call it an asset because the implication of it being combusted 
was so hellish and heinous that um, it wasn't an asset. And as Mark said, Bill McKibben took this data and made poetry of it in this article. And the article was true to its name, which was it was about global warming and it was, it was math and it was terrifying. And what Bill did essentially is burn this carbon and then looked at a four degree, six degree world, much like Mark Linus's work, um, and and pointed out that that's the end of civilization uh, as we uh, know it. And um, I had friends come to me and say, wow, you know, it's, it's, it really is game over. We failed. It's too late. Um, I'm going to move to British Columbia and buy a farm in the Squamish Valley, <laughs> things like that. I mean, in other words, I'm giving up. And it occurred to me at that time that sometimes when we surrender, when we give up, it's actually not game over, it's game on. In other words, you've kind of given up one sensibility of being or doing or acting in the world, and then there's an opening to a new one. And that's when I decided, well, no one's going to do the drawdown unless I do it with a group of people. And what drawdown is, is basically mapping, measuring, and modeling the 100 most substantive solutions to reversing global warming, and then scaling them over 30 years to see if we could achieve that. And each solution being something that is in place, that is scaling, is practical, that we know how to do very well, uh, and in most cases is profitable. Right. What does drawdown actually mean? It drawdown actually means the first time on a year-to-year basis where greenhouse gases peak and go down uh, as opposed to stabilize or as opposed to go up, of course, which is what is happening now. So it means to bring carbon back home. Right. Now, you decided to focus on existing solutions for the book. Can you talk a little bit about that, Paul? Well, sure, because I think there is a kind of a a very strong silver bullet mentality that has persisted about global warming, which is that looking for that sort of Archimedean lever somewhere, you know, that if we just all get on this thing and pull together, you know, that we can, you know, beat this problem, you know, win or whatever. It's a very male kind of thing. And it's understandable because the science on climatology is is very dominated by men and even more so 40, 30 years ago. And what they identified was a super, super wicked problem. And so 60 to 70% of the CO2, uh, of the incremental CO2 since uh, the onset of the industrial age is from the combustion of fossil fuels. So it makes perfectly logical sense to say, well, then we have to go to 100% renewable, and then if we do that, then we will solve the problem, or that's the implication of it. Or, you know, there's many other proposals, we can talk about them more if you wish, but, you know, that somehow we can do a bypass and carbon capture systems and backs bioenergy, CCS, carbon capture systems, and direct air capture. There's many ideas floating around right now that are very much in the silver bullet category. 
And what we wanted to focus on is what we know how to do very well so that if we projected it out over 30 years and it showed that we could achieve drawdown, which it does, by the way, uh, just to give away the ending, um, the then people would have a sense of um, that it was grounded, that it was possible, and that that mindset of game over could be reversed itself to game on. We can do this. We know how to do this. It doesn't mean that there aren't going to be more solutions, technologies, techniques, practices coming on. I mean, there is a plethora of them coming on. Humanity is ingenious. But just to know that what we already are doing and know how to do cumulatively, if it scales in a rigorous but reasonable way, can reverse uh, global warming uh, is in itself uh, a motivating um, piece of data. And you know, for all our data, you know, all our modeling was based on um, peer-reviewed science on the greenhouse gas side, on CO2 and carbon, and on the economic side, which we also modeled, which is much more difficult to model, actually. Uh, all our data is based on respected international institutions like the International Energy Agency in Paris, the World Bank, Bloomberg Energy, FAO, etc. So actually all of the data that we modeled and put together in Drawdown is not our data. What we did is basically put it together and then reflect back to the world what it knows, what it is doing, and the impact it can have going out three decades. Great, great. I'd be interested to talk about that process in a moment. But you, you mentioned these new technologies and so forth. And I was very surprised, uh, speaking to Kevin Anderson and others, that just how many of the IPCC scenarios and other scenarios have embedded in them these ideas, these forecasts of negative emissions technologies. They do. And I think part of the reason, it's interesting, if I can just circle back on that term, negative emission. And, and this goes back to maybe something we should talk about more, which is how do you language this solutions? And as an English major, I can tell you that negative emission has no meaning whatsoever. <laughs> it's like a negative tree. Um, <laughs> you don't want to drive a negative car. I mean, it means zero, nothing. There's no such thing. And we're using... The language around climate change is, is riven with negativity. That's an obvious one, negative emissions, decarbonization, the war on climate, the battle for combating, all those words are all negative. And this is a particular one. Negative emissions means basically to capture the CO2 in the air and bring it back down or capture it from flue gases, from coal or gas-fired uh, electrical generation plants and capture that, liquefy it, and then pump it deep into the ground where hopefully it will never emerge again for a reasonable amount of time. And this is what a lot of people are focused on. And there's also uh, bioenergy carbon capture systems where basically it's 300 million hectares of land in the probably mostly the global south, to be frank. Uh, would be converted uh, to growing biomass. It could be willow trees, it could be switchgrass, it could be, there's many things it could be, but uh, 
which is then harvested and combusted or in some cases fermented, but mostly combusted. And then the flue gases of the combustion would be captured. That would be the carbon side and be producing energy from this. And it's such a Frankensteinian scheme in terms of, you know, roads and whose land and where their farms are and which countries. And it wouldn't be Europe. That's for darn sure, you know. So where would this be and how would it happen? And we don't even have successful carbon capture systems to this day in terms of the money or the cost or how much carbon they capture. Right, right. That's a very important point, I think, and, and very interesting. It's good to be mindful, as you say, about how we talk about this. Um, now, how important is the climate change problem for you on the scale of environmental issues? And, and where are we today, in your view? Well, in terms of scale, it, it isn't on the scale. <laughs> in other words, if you put... I mean, it's... It's the problem, the words problem or crisis are, are, are beggared by the enormity of the implications and impact of global warming. And I use global warming instead of climate change. And the reason for that is that the climate is supposed to change. That's what it does. It's like your body. It's supposed to change every nanosecond, and thank God it does, and that's what makes you alive. And climate, so th- there's this idea that somehow we have to stop, combat, fight climate change, and that is a misunderstanding, and it's used by science and the IPCC, so I, I understand why people use it, because science is using that. And, um, but first of all, it's, it's, it's a fool's errand to fight change anyway because all everything changes all the time um it's the number one principle of of biology of science of buddhism you name it it's everyone knows the same thing which is that everything's changing constantly and that's what makes this world so beautiful exquisite miraculous and alive and so we don't really want to you know deal with climate change you want to deal with global warming and reversing it. So the impact of global warming is so enormous that, like I said, the words crisis and problem, you know, really are beggared by it. So the same with the scale. But if you look at the other environmental problems, quote, quote, many of them relate directly to global warming. And if they don't, at the moment, they will. And in either way that if you don't solve that one, all the rest of the ones are game over. They are game over, whether it's oceans, forests, land, biodiversity, you know, I mean, acidification. There isn't a single issue uh, that we are dealing with on this environmental side that isn't subsumed by global warming. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about the process, Paul, to create this project? You're a remarkable group of scientists and researchers. Um, you, you mentioned the genesis of the, of the original idea goes back uh, you know, to the turn of the century. But can you talk a little bit about how you turned this into reality? Well, yes. Um, when we started this, there was just a very small group of friends, people, and we had no money. 
Uh, and a few wonderful donors did give us a small amount. I borrowed $154,000 from my retirement account, uh, some of which is still in there. (laughs) 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 And, um, but we knew that we couldn't staff it. In other words, we couldn't hire uh, the number and, and, and quality of scientists required to do the work at hand. And so um, we have a really brilliant um, head of research, um, Chad Frischman. And, um, and he and, and Crystal um, Chazelle actually went out into the world and put out a call for Drawdown Fellows, Drawdown Research Fellows to universities uh, and institutions. And we got back an enormous number of people applying to be a Drawdown Fellow for, uh, you know, I'm embarrassed to say, but it was a $1,000 stipend. You know, we didn't have any money, but it was $1,000 to be a part of Project Drawdown. Um, And uh, we were overwhelmed, like I said, by applications, and it was so impressive. Uh, White House fellows, uh, Fulbright scholars, Rhodes scholars, uh, Aga Khan award winners. It just went on and on. It's stunning uh, CVs and resumes that came in. And about 70 were chosen, um, and half of them are PhDs. Um, Those uh, that aren't are actually, many are aspiring to get their doctorate. Um, all advanced degrees, double degrees, almost half women, 22 countries, six continents, and very diverse group of um, people uh, in their 20s and 30s. And that became the core research staff for Project Radom. To that, uh, we added 120 plus advisors uh, from around the world um, more North American than we would want, but actually that's because I knew them all pretty much. But uh, And they were unpaid, of course. And these are also scientists, botanists, biologists, they're engineers, they're architects, uh, they're activists, they're writers, they're politicians, they're religious leaders, um, uh, and climatologists, IPCC lead authors, um, and so on. And to that, we added another approximately 40 outside uh, expert scientific reviewers of the model itself. So when the model was completed, then they would basically take it apart and, and look at it and make suggestions or comments or criticisms uh, so that we got that right. And so we had this sort of three-part uh, staff, if you will, or input, uh, which we coordinated um, and over two and a half years to come up with the data that informed uh, Project Radon. At the same time, um, Catherine Wilkinson uh, and myself then took these, basically the research reports that our fellows came up with were, you know, like theses, really. I mean, and they not only did the modeling, but they also wrote up each solution with a um, tremendous amount of uh, references and 
Um, and then we took that uh, and then wrote up this, did our own research as well, but wrote up the solutions um, in a way that was more of a narrative, more of a story, more something that would engage a reader, you know, wasn't meant to be sort of dry science. Um, and, um, and then chose imagery and, you know, that's how the book came out. But the research itself, it's an ongoing research project that will be housed now in a major university. And we're working with seven other universities around the world, uh, including uh, in the UK and in India and Australia um, and several here in the United States so that it will become what we are at Drawdown, which is a collaboration. So the very core of Drawdown is a collaborative effort from people around the world to come together and map, measure, and model the most substantive solutions to reversing global warming. Well, the ongoing research institute will be a collaboration. And in fact, everything we do is actually collaborative. Uh, it's no longer a question of cost or money so much, not that we have any, but it's more of a process. And we just feel that the way the science has been communicated has been uh, alienating or uh, disengaging for 99 point whatever percent of the people on earth, which shows and that we want to engage in a communication methodology um, that is very different, that is inclusive, that is big tent, that is listening based, not just being right. Because we don't say we're right. What we say is we're a we think this is approximately right because nobody's right about the future. But what it tells us is that humanity is actually on the case, that we actually are doing something, that it is scaling, that it does have impact, and that if it continues to scale, that we can reverse global warming. And I think this is a message the world hasn't ever heard. And um, at the same time, if you go back to the research process itself, we were very, very careful on the carbon side or the greenhouse gas side, and then on the monetary side, on the economic side, to always go conservative. We did have one bias in this, and that was conservatism, which is that we would do sensitivity analysis for the median uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, results with if there was a spread in, on, in peer-reviewed science on uh, the impact of a solution. Same with on the monetary side. We are very careful to temper the learning rates, which is how fast things go down uh, in cost, you know, and technologies, and also um, <clears throat> the rate of innovation. And so. We've been out six, seven months now, and there hasn't been one single gotcha, you know, from the science community. <laughs> and it's a, it's a gotcha community, and I'm glad it is. I mean, that's what it's there to do, say, no, 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 this is actually the, the case, not that. And we haven't gotten one. I'm not saying there isn't one, but I'm just saying is that the data has really held up and then drawn in. Uh, scientists and IPCC uh, authors uh, from all over the world to further engage. So I think what the research has done basically or is going to become is in a sense the standard uh, uh, of 
solution data in the world, the gold standard. We're the gold standard now because there isn't anything like it. I think others would flinch if they heard that because there is McKinsey abatement reports and there is you know, stuff out there, but it is not complete the way we went about it. Um, and it's and it doesn't do what we did, and nor does it engage humanity as a whole. Yes, the methodology is, is uh, clearly terribly important. Now, there are 80, uh, 100 solutions, 80 um, and 20 coming attractions. How did you decide on the ranking? And were there other criteria that you might have thought of? You know, I mean, you talked about this kind of um, magic bullet, you know, the, the two th- are three things that, that would have the biggest impact. I think one of the insights in this project is that small things are important too. Can you just talk a little bit about the decision of how to rank them? Well, the ranking was strictly um, uh, on greenhouse gas. In other words, how much over 30 years, if it's scaled in a rigorous way, but reasonable way, um, how much reduction in emissions there would be, or in the case of land use solutions, how much sequestration or capture of CO2 would happen over that time. So it's, the ranking is strictly by CO2 and CO2 equivalent in other greenhouse gases. Um, and that's all based on science and, um, and then scaling, of course, combined. Um, <clears throat> and so that was pretty straightforward. We did do 80, and 80 solutions. We have data that is extant, that is we have lots of data on those solutions, so we can model them. We also did 20 coming attractions, which are valid scientifically, um, but around which there's very little data because they're nascent, incipient, just on the horizon, so to speak. And so we wanted to give that sense of like, this is what we know, are doing, can do, and here's the data, rich in that, and then here's what's coming. We actually have data, or we have not data not so much, but we have information on hundreds of more coming attractions, and we're going to do another book showing 60 to 80 more of them to give people a sense of just how innovative, creative, and ingenious humanity is, and that it's not like we're sitting on our hands on this one, you know, and there are some extraordinary solutions coming that are not modeled in our book. And we put that on top of the ones that are modeled uh, and measured. Uh, you get a very sense, a very different sense of possibility. Going back to your question um, of ranking, we're not quite there yet, but once uh, all the data is up and the spreadsheets on the economic side as well as the greenhouse gas side, um, then you can then say, well, I want to know what is the top solution in terms of um, price per carbon ton, you know, ton of carbon. Um, price meaning cost. You could do it by profit. You could um, you can never play with that all day long and change the rankings. You know, in terms of rate of impact, etc. No, it's not just impact, but the rate of impact. Uh, LED uh, is much greater for the next 
12, 13, 14 years, and then it just levels off because it saturates the, the lighting business. So, you know, all those things are in there and you can play with it as you will um, according to what you need. But the book itself, we wanted to make it very straightforward in just terms of greenhouse gases. Great. I'd like to touch on that maybe a little later. But I guess um, if you'd asked experts uh, before you you did this what the most important solutions were, I wonder how many would have got them, (laughs) Uh, the top five or the top seven. Or um, It shows, I suppose, to some degree how little we knew looking at it from, from that perspective. What did you find most surprising? Well, what we found surprising is that we were surprised by the whole the whole darn thing. I mean, I think we would be just like any expert, which is since we learned from them, we would have made a list. uh, There would have been solar, wind, you know, I I joke about, because we're in California, Elon Musk, but in other words, EVs, you know, no transport, electrification, uh, reduce meat consumption and stop cutting trees. And I think when you really listen to a lot of the speakers who are most prominent in this area, that's what they say, and primarily so renewable clean energy. And there's an implication that if we just did those things, we would get a hall pass to the 22nd century. In other words, it's, it's, it's cool, you know, and we'll make it. And that is a scientific howler. It's just not true. And, and yet we keep putting that out. And the problem with the first three, for example, is not much you and I can do about those, you know. And most people say, well, I hope they, whoever they are, is, do that, you know. And it sort of leaves you out. And then on the other hand, if you, you get information from, you can Google it, you can get it from local NGOs and so forth, they say, well recycle and you know compost your food and waste and you know get a hybrid electric and you know and and you know take your shopping bag back to the store you know that's done quite regularly in europe but here people don't um etc etc you know and these really they're very they're, they're these are good solutions too but they're so de minimis and so uh, unequal to the task at hand that I think most individuals go, whoa, you know, like I can't do the big ones and the little ones don't really amount to a hill of beans when it comes to uh, global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And I, I think a lot of people just feel sort of disengaged or defeated or disempowered or whatever word is appropriate to that person. And so when we did this, I think we all would have made a list that was, well, I know that, that would have been wrong. Uh, Chad, Crystal, myself, um, and the others. Um, we, we knew, quote, quote, what they were approximately, and there was no question in our mind. But the modeling we did is really systemic. It's system dynamics. It's not really, you can't model something in a silo. You can't model enormous increase in EVs without turning around and saying, well, where is this E going to come from for the Vs, you know? 
And is it come from coal or gas or is it going to come from wind or solar? And if that, you know, I mean, that's just a simplistic example of system dynamics. And so until February of this year, two months before the book came out, um, we actually didn't know what the numbers were. We had a sense maybe, but we weren't sure. And it really wasn't until February 12th that we put, kind of pushed, Chad pushed the button, so to speak, and said, okay, total. <laughs> and out they came, and they were so surprising that we all um, said, wait a minute, let's check our algorithms. And, you know, I mean, are you sure? You know, and, 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 and they were all, they're all valid. And um, it's so interesting, Virgo, because at that time I got a call from a very, very wonderful and prominent scientist who has published, a professor, IPCC uh, author and an advisor and said, how's it going? I said, it's great. We just got the numbers. And I said, I find them kind of shocking, not in a bad way, but just shocking. And I said, you know, I don't think anybody, this is February, I don't think anybody in the world knows the top five solutions to reversing global warming, not Ban Ki-moon or Christine, Christina Figueres or Al Gore or Jim Hansen or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the person said, well, what are they? And um, I said, you tell me, <laughs> you're the expert. And this person's been in climate for 30 years and specializes in climate communication. And, and and I said, okay. And they said that there is this and this. I could hear them talking out loud. It'd be, you know, EVs, no mass transit, and, you know, be solar. I was just listening to them sort of talking out loud. And they said, okay, here they are. You know, here's the five that would be in the top five, not by ranking. And they said, well, how did I do? And I said, that wasn't the point of the question. And they said, well, what was the point of the question? I said, the point is that you are probably one of a, a handful, maybe several hundred people in the world know as much about this and have studied as long as you have. And look how long it took you to come up with any five solutions. And so if that's true for you, what about the other 99.99% of humanity? What do they know? And the person said, oh, you, you're right. I hadn't thought about it that way. And I said, well, either has the rest of humanity because they don't, they're clueless, you know. And I said, well, how did I do? And I said, they're all wrong. And, and some of them, <laughs> and, and I, I'm not trying to put this person down. I'm saying we would have got them wrong. I think everybody would have got them wrong. We just didn't know because in the last 40 years, even though, uh, global warming uh, has been in the public sphere and much debated and talked about. No one has ever mapped, measured, or modeled the top solutions to reversing global warming. And this is the first time it's ever happened. So it's not surprising that the data are surprising because we just didn't know. Well, absolutely. It's testimony, probably to some extent, to the way the, the issue has been framed and the terror and the, 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 you know, the negative side of things that, you know, that people haven't uh, asked this fundamental question. And it's fascinating to see the results. I mean, refrigeration, refrigerant management, I mean, really, 
Yeah, uh, what, really. a, what, a, what a result. What a result. I mean, <laughs> we were just, I have to confess, we were a little disappointed. <laughs> so the, the number one one, I go, oh, no, we can't rock the world. <laughs> but that one is number one, you know, it's just so unsexy, you know. I mean, and, and what can anybody do about that one, you know? But, um, yeah, refrigerant management came at number one. And that was sans the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol, which passed last year in Rwanda, which would double that number at least. Uh, um, but again, it just speaks to the conservatism of the numbers themselves. You know, wind number two is is onshore. You add offshore wind to it, it becomes number one. Um, the number three solution is reduced food waste, but that doesn't count uh, methane emissions from landfilled uh, food, um, which is huge. And the reason we didn't uh, include that is because we could find no good data, really, because it's, you know, who wastes which food in which country and whether it's thrown away or landfilled. And I mean, it was just, the data was just so uh, all over the map, you know, we didn't include that. You put that in there, I bet you reduce food waste would be number one. Um, who knows, you know, so the 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 ranking itself is is is, you know, as I just um, uh, showed in the in the top uh, three, you know, could very easily change. So it's really not important that they're one, two, three at all. Actually, it just gives a sense of relative scale, and it goes back to an earlier thing you spoke of, which is really big, small. And there's a tendency, especially in the country I uh, dwell in, America. Uh, <laughs> It's always about what's the biggest, what's the top, what's the top 10, you know, what's the, you know, there's always a sense that, that the most important things are the biggest things. And I would demur on that one. I would say that, of course, the big ones are important. That's obvious. But at the same time, when you look at a pie chart of all the 80 solutions that we modeled, you'll see very big ones and very tiny ones. But, uh, but they're still in the top 80, you know, relatively tiny, that is, or relatively small. But the fact is that it's a system that basically double glazed the planet with CO2, methane, nitrous oxide, and hydrofluorocarbons. So it's a system that's going to heal it. So there's no such thing as a small thing in an integrated system. You are an integrated system. You're called you know, homo sapiens, genus homo, okay, in you, you know, is an extraordinary number of biological uh, events happening every second. Now, can you say, oh, I don't really need my thymus gland or, you know, my thyroid, don't need that. They're so small. I just stick with my lungs and kidney and intestines, you know. It's ridiculous. And yet we do tend to look at the problem or the solutions to the problem in that way, which is we can just focus on the big ones and the little ones are like, fine, great, that's for some NGO somewhere, you know, but, you know, we men will focus on the big charismatic solutions. And thank God there are people focusing on the big charismatic solutions because they're absolutely crucial to reversing global warming, but then so too are the small ones. It's kind of like the 80-20 rule, the Pareto optimality, which is basically, for sure, 20% of the solutions provide 80% of the impact, but those next 80% of the solutions, you know, may only provide 20% of the impact, but that 20% makes a difference between continuing 
to increase emissions in the atmosphere or actually reversing them. So who's to say which is most important? They're all important. That's a really fascinating point, I think, because one tends to hear a lot of Pareto thinking in AD20, and then the people say it's 90, 90, 10, and, well, 99, 1 in in, in other domains. Um, Now, you mentioned um, uh, the the feedback uh, from one particular climate scientist. More generally, what has been the response to this? Um, It is emerging as a framework. More people are talking about it, and and, and presumably people are embedding it in their, you know, organisational and policy plans. a little bit about that and what your vision might be for how that that might play out i know it's not uh, your, your immediate concern but um i just wonder what your thoughts are on that paul well it, it, you're, you're correct that is to say it is a framework it's a new framework it's a framework based on possibility um most of the information we get about um our climate and global warming is about probability, which is it's probable that this is going to happen. It's probable that Miami is going to be under two feet or three feet of water in 2100. It's probable that droughts are going to increase as well as uh, basically um, very consequential torrential rainfall that the hydrologic cycle is going to become more extreme. It's probable. This is all good science, by the way. So when I say that that's what the communication people get, it's almost always based on very good science. But the problem with that is that the, um, we just keep getting that over and over and over. Our way of looking at this is that the science is extraordinary. There has never been a more, um, Um, a a better articulated uh, problem statement uh, by science or anyone for that matter, but by science in the world ever. This is extraordinary what the IPCC has done. And when you hear about the headlines or read about them or see them, uh, what they do is they validate the problem statement and because the problem statement has always included projections of what will happen. And so it's about pattern recognition, which is these, you know, extreme weather events or this flooding or this drought or this famine or etc. all relate to things that were predicted 20, 30, 40 years ago. So this is not news from a science point of view. As a polity, as people, as humanity, what we're saying is a great problem statement. The problem statement is validated almost every week or day by some news event. So it, that means the problem statement is, is, is really good, which is now let's focus on the solution. If we keep focusing on the problem and how it's getting worse faster, which may be true, by the way, it is true, uh, then what happens is we go into a kind of rinse and repeat cycle of despair, of of, uh, a sense of disempowerment, of feeling defeated, that we sense that we're the object that's happening to us, that uh, we're disempowered, you know, we feel bad. And we even feel guilt and shame in many cases, or we feel completely disengaged, or we actually get angry and become deniers, you know, and say, 
this is BS, you know, and, you know, I, you know, my, my garden is doing really well and there's still birds and, you know, and I, I just don't believe this, you know, it's just extreme weather. So that's the range of responses. And what we are about is possibility and not about probability. We love the science. So it's not denying the probability so much as like, can we focus on the possibility? What is the opportunity latent? in this problem statement. And and when we focus on that, then we are, in a sense, encompassing both as opposed to just one. And so rather than see global warming as an event that is basically deleterious and happening to us for which we are objects and victims, um, we suggest that global warming is happening for us. And what I mean by for us is that it is feedback. And so the atmospheric atmospheric class climatic system, which produces weather, is feedback. In other words, what we're seeing is feedback from an overall system. Any system that ignores feedback perishes. So your body gives you feedback all the time and most people pay attention to that feedback and do something about it. Some people don't, you know. But I'm just saying is that's the system and you get feedback, whether it's a fever, whether, you know, it hurts, I can't walk, I woke up, this way. You know, all of the symptoms, diseases, you know, and manifestations are feedback to this system called the human body. Well, this is feedback to the system called the earth. And in feedback, is a lesson, a teaching, an offering, a blessing. It's a blessing, it's not a curse. And so we're saying this feedback is can lead to a much, much more interesting, better, kinder, gentler, restorative, regenerative world than the one we live in now, if we accept the feedback as a spur to innovation, creativity, and imagination. So when you think it's happening for you as opposed to to you, what you do is you take 100% responsibility for what's happened all the way to this point in time. So you stop blaming, you stop being a righteous, you stop demonizing. It doesn't mean you don't speak truth to power, but I'm just saying is you don't have to live with all that in your brain, your mind, because that just takes up mind space. And instead, you focus on what it means to be a human being on earth at this time in the history of civilization and what can I do? And I think as soon as you go to I, you understand that it's really what can we do? It's not I. There is no I here. Really, it's a we. You know, we're vastly and intricately interconnected with each other and with the earth itself. And that's what leads to collaboration in the sense that we can do this. So what's happening with Drawdown is we're seeing numerous uh, organizations and groups collaborate around this framework. And there's a Drawdown Nova Scotia, which is um, committing to reversing its emissions in 2025. We have cities doing the same thing. We have a university that's committing to reversing its emissions by 2025, not just carbon neutral or, you know, to reversing. Uh, We have faith-based groups um, um, wanting to uh, get more information and and really just um, types of tools that help them educate parishioners. Um, We have 
investors from all over the world uh, who want to use it as a framework for family funds, for impact investing, um, for risk assessment as well. In other words, you have a generational change in so many fortunes in the world right now. And, and they want to direct it towards what is going to regenerate the world, not what's going to degenerate it. And they may have made their money from degeneration, but that's not where the new generation wants to go. You have people uh, working together all over now on curriculum development, and we're working with them on that. But what we do is we connect the teachers to each other. What we do is we, we have cities coming together wanting to do that. So we connect the cities together and they learn from each other and we support them in whatever way we can. The ethos of Drawdown is to support, to be generous, to offer, to give. It's not to all roads lead to, it's all roads lead out of to uh, what humanity wants to do. And I feel like humanity has not had a framework around which to organize itself uh, with respect to climate and global warming because it's primarily been defined by problems and the problems are real and they're accurate. It's just that that's not a basis to organize in an effective way. You need possibility and in a systemic way that's practical, grounded and uh, actionable. A very inspiring vision, Paul. How can people get involved? You mentioned that it's not individuals, it's groups, but how can people get involved? They go to the website, buy the book. Um, what else would you say? Well, yeah, I mean, they, they can skip the book if they want to just go to the website. I mean, it's it's, a, it's an abbreviated form of it, so it's that's free, of course. Um, they can write to us. We are, uh, candidly, we're not at the point where we are an, able in real time to respond or reconnect people. We're a little bit overwhelmed, but that will change soon. It may change, you know, before the year is out or at least by early next year. But we do take people's interests and name and place and so forth. And if we have something to connect them to right away, we will. If we don't, it's like take a number, we'll get back to you. Um, and we're creating a hub, a climate hub. So in a sense, people can do that themselves. But what we're seeing uh, because of Drawdown, it's a framework that is actually self-organizing. The people are organizing, they don't need us. They, you know, and. We want to, where I said we're a living research institute and the research is updated every day actually, but, but um, we want the, uh, to create a system where the models are available from, uh, so that you can localize them. Um, and we're gonna work on that next year so that if you have a social, political, geographic entity like a country, a province, a state, a city, and so forth, then you can use Drawdown and those solutions that are applicable to that area and then use it to benchmark, measure, educate, and foment and change policy and accelerate. Um, and so our model is global, which is interesting and fascinating, but actually it's not so applicable to say, you know, Kent or Sussex <laughs> or the UK or, you know, County Cork or France, you know, I mean, so we, people are doing it, but we want to enable them to do that in a more precise way uh, and useful way. Um, and then, of course, we will keep adding data, 
more solutions in the model that aren't in the book. The book had a page limit. Um, and we'll keep adding coming attractions. We'll add uh, a tab, um, like you go to a solution, let's say, and say, well, I any solution, um, like girls' education, the number six solution. And you say, well, I want to know more about this. You just boom, and we'll have a whole list of of, of say documentaries of NGOs of books of articles of podcasts uh, whatever it is you know uh, so you can learn more about that we'll have another tab called um, basically activate and activate means I want to do something about this and then there we'll have also NGOs that are doing something and which you can get involved with you know minimally about donation but more uh, in many cases, um, and so that basically you can virtually on every single solution, with a couple exceptions, there will be a way that you as an individual can get involved in activation. Oftentimes, activation will also include being a part of um, a larger group, you know, that feels the same as you or that is involved. They can be virtual as all over the world, like curriculum, or they can be local, like in Nova Scotia. But so you'll have a way through the uh, Drawdown Hub to find, locate, um, uh, communicate, uh, and then uh, participate. Um, in drawdown in ways which are again grounded you know we you know we I think you know um, hope to be valid needs to uh, pass a sobriety test and walk a pretty straight line to reality otherwise it's just delusion and so the groundedness and the of this of of our solutions and the data and the science uh gives people a sense um, that is very different than just wanting to be hopeful, which in a sense is not a great place to be. That's a great vision, Paul. Thank you so much for taking the time to share all of this uh, inspiring work you're doing and and this great, great uh, project. And I wish you the very best of success in the future. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it inspiring. If you'd like to continue listening to the Drawdown Agenda podcast, interviewing key researchers from Project Drawdown, go to thedrawdownagenda.com, where you can hear my next interview with Amanda Hong and Zach Aquardi on the two biggest food-related climate solutions. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher and Google Play. Finally, we'd be very grateful if you could help spread the word on social media and leave a review, as this will help others find this podcast.